You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we will be. If you need a copy of God's Word, a hard copy that you'd like to look off of, uh, Mr. Wayne was walking down the aisles, just slip up your hand and he'd be glad to give you one. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 is where we'll begin reading here in just a moment. If you're a visitor here with us at St. Rose Community Church, uh, our practice every Sunday, every Lord's Day, is to work through whole books of the Bible. So we do what's called expositional preaching, where it's my task every week as one of the pastors here to stand up with the Word of God and to try to faithfully explain our way through a whole book of the Bible. So uh, we start in verse 1, and then we just take the next paragraph and take the next paragraph, take the next paragraph. And what that enables us to do is to study the whole counsel of God's Word. Uh, What that enables us to do is to sort of be guided and directed by the Holy Spirit of God to look at everything God has inspired for our good. And what that leads us to is to paragraphs in the Bible, chapters in the Bible, that are skipped in a lot of American churches. Passages of the Bible that are difficult to teach, difficult to understand, Perhaps more importantly, though, difficult to apply. And so what we turn to this morning is one of those chapters that you may have never heard a sermon on in your time attending churches. What we're turning to is a chapter that is very often skipped over because of the difficulty, and because of the way this chapter contradicts what our cultural understanding of what local churches are. this, This text really confronts challenges and even convicts our minds when it comes to what we think about when we think about the local church in particular. What we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is God's idea for the church, but what's unsettling about that is that it is, might be different than what your idea of the church is. The vision of a church painted here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is so much more than a Sunday morning service or a weekly program designed to evangelize the lost. It's more than a spiritual good provider for spiritual consumers who attend. What we find in 1 Corinthians 5 is more beautiful than that. It's more meaningful than that, it's better than that for your life, and it's harder than that to truly live out. First Corinthians has been a book where Paul is confronting a church in the city of Corinth for uh, some problems that he has heard about. Uh, this is a church which is in many ways an unhealthy church. And after being very direct with the Corinthians uh, for several chapters, in general, chapter 4, verse 14 changes gears a bit. We looked at this last week. Paul's been saying some pretty direct things 
and challenging things to the Corinthians. And then in verse 14, he pauses just to say, well, hold on. Let, me, let, me, let me explain why I'm being so direct with you. Why I'm confronting some of the problems in the church. And this is what he says in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So he kind of stops and he says, okay, I recognize some of the things that I'm saying is hard to you, but I'm saying hard things to you the same way in which a loving parent would not allow their child to run into the road of oncoming traffic. I'm, I'm being direct. I'm being somewhat forceful. I'm being somewhat loud. I'm, I'm saying something that perhaps you don't like me to say, but I'm saying it because you're like beloved children to me. I want what is best for you. And it doesn't seem like you know what's best for you. So he sort of pauses in chapter 14 just to say, I'm writing this because I love you. And that's an important reminder because chapter 5 now goes into some of the most direct things that he has to say and some of the hardest instructions that he has to give. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It's going to take us two weeks to work through this chapter. Um, and, and it's really the same topic in both weeks, um, just different nuances of it. And I, think it's bec- and I, I did that on purpose because I think we need two weeks to really soak on these concepts because they're so different than our modern understanding of the church. So let's look at verse 1. Uh, I'll read through verse 5. We're going to pause and ask for God to give understanding. Verse 1, Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, let's pray, pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, um, and it is, uh, it's easy to underestimate just how significant this moment in Scripture is for our life together as a church. And God, we come to you this morning just asking that you would bring clarity as to what this paragraph means and that you would help us to set aside whatever our presuppositions are, whatever our cultural influences are, whatever it is that in us, whether it be sin or our upbringing or uh, uh, whatever uh, sort of mentalities that are separate from the very mentality of God, we pray that you would help us to set it aside and come to this text saying, God, what is it that you have called us to in this text? What sort of people should we be as the people of God? What's our task? What's our mission? Humble us, God, and help us to approach this text of Scripture with a a humble opening of the hands to say, Lord, lead us into faithfulness, whatever faithfulness may look like. Father, we pray these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported 
that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So let's think about the context of what's happening here. The letter now hyper-focuses on one individual living in sin in the Corinthians church. Thus far, he's spoken in generalities. You Corinthians, you, you struggle with pride, you're focusing on uh, uh, the way a message is communicated, rhetoric and oration, all these things, rather than the message of the cross, he spoke in somewhat general, but we're no longer talking in generalities. Now Paul is addressing not just patterns of thinking plaguing the Christians, he's now laser focused on one particular situation, one very real person's life that reveals just how unhealthy the whole church really is. Paul laser focuses on this situation, and it should cause us to pay really careful attention as to why he would call this out in the midst of all the things going on in the city of Corinth. It's not that this is the only sin happening in Corinth. Paul does not believe that once you become a Christian, you become sinless. Paul confesses his own sins and weaknesses at other places, but there's something about the nature of this sin in this way that's different. There's something about this sin that demands the kind of response that he is about to outline. So the first thing we're going to do is we're just going to make three observations about the sin in this text. This sin. Three observations about the sin. Observation number one. This sin that was taking place in the church was undeniable. This sin was undeniable. Notice the language. It, it's actually reported to me that there is sexuality, sexual immorality among you. So, so, so this sexual sin of this individual is so serious, it's so public, that Paul has heard about it from hundreds of miles away. Like, word has gotten Around One commentator writes that uh, Paul may not seem to, uh, now that Paul may not seem to charge them on doubtful suspicions, he says that the case which he brings forward is well known. It's in general circulation. It's no vague rumor, but a matter well known and published everywhere so as to cause a great scandal. The, the public nature of this sin has gotten back to Paul's ears. And though the sin itself was not done in public, it is something that is now known by everyone. The person's lifestyle has the whole town talking. Not only does it have the whole town talking, it has the non-Christians talking, and the non-Christians also agree this is not good. Verse 1 it's reported that there's sexual morality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Now, uh, that must be pretty sinful for the pagans in Corinth to say that's out of bounds. That's too far. Their sexual standards were not super high in the pagan city of Corinth. But apparently extramarital incest crosses the line for the non-Christian Corinthians. And so if non-Christians in Corinth knew about it, they know there's something morally wrong about something happening in the church here, then of course the Christians ought to be aware of whatever's happening, right? No one, what Paul's essentially saying with verse 1 is no one can claim ignorance 
here. No one can claim they didn't know about it here. No one can claim that they didn't know it was wrong here. This sin that's happening is undeniable. In this person, who supposedly is a meaningful part of the church in Corinth. So observation number one, it's undeniable. Observation number two, this sin was ongoing and unrepentant. So let's look at verse one again. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind not tolerated even among the pagans. Okay, now what is it that's really going on here? For a man has his father's wife. Okay, what's the situation? Apparently, a young man is in an ongoing sexual relationship with a woman who is not his wife, but not only is she not his wife, she is his daddy's wife. Jesus, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So either, and we don't have crystal clarity here, we're not sure, either this woman is his own stepmother, or this woman is his biological mother. Now, either way, gross, either way, undeniable sin. And apparently, we're not talking about a one-time occasion where the whole family got drunk and something crazy happened, right? This is not a one-time moral failure. I mean, Paul's making this clear. Apparently, this is a lifestyle choice that has been made. A recognizable church member of the Corinthian community church Someone known to be an affiliate, a representative of the church, they're living in sexual sin with their own stepmother or mother in an ongoing and unrepentant way. The word has his father's wife there emphasizes this is an ongoing reality. Okay, so so one other translation, the CSB translates it this way. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. NRSV translates it this way. A man is living with his wife father's wife. You're starting to see why this paragraph gets skipped over uh, in normal Sunday morning preaching. This is an uncomfortable situation. This is a lifestyle choice which contradicts God's very good design for marriage, for sexuality. But let's, let's just realize this is a real person in real history who's making some real life choices And by those life choices is making this declaration. I don't care what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. I don't care that everybody agrees that it's sin. I want to be happy. I want to live in this sin even if it is rebellion against God. That's the situation. It's an ongoing and unrepentant sin. Now, I want to briefly jump out of order here because what we're doing right now is we're just focusing on the nature of the sin, like what's really happening in the church here. I want to jump out of order and I want to make an observation based off of the end of the paragraph. Later, Paul is going to make an assumption, a very important assumption, that because of the nature of this kind of sin, Paul is going to assume that this man is not actually a born-again believer like he says he is. Paul's going to advocate for the removal of this man from from being a recognized part of the church, and he's going to advocate it, and and he's going to advocate for something that you may have heard as church discipline or maybe excommunicate. He's going to say, this man needs to be removed from official church membership because on the basis of 
we can no longer affirm this man really has the Spirit of God in him. So look, skip forward just a little bit at verse 5. Verse 5. The end of verse 5, he gives us the motivation for what he's about to argue for this church to do. And here's the motivation. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's going he's gonna to argue for them to remove this man for the purpose of maybe this man might realize he's not really one of the people of God and it'll drive him to repentance to really come to know the Lord Jesus. The seriousness of this situation needs to be declared in such a way you're not one of us so maybe it might lead him to become one of us. All right? So this is observation number three that we see. This sin suggests that the man was not saved. Now we'll talk more about that verse, more about the process, but let's just talk about the assumption for a second. The assumption is that this man is a member of the Corinthian church, but he may not actually be a member of the people of God. He may have joined the church for some reason, but that is not what makes you a member of the people of God. For Paul, salvation means something more. It means that when you put faith in Jesus, Jesus makes you new by the grace of God. It means that you become born again to a new kind of life. It means to be a new creation. Now, that does not mean that you are sinless, but it does mean you are different. So what happens when you become a Christian is that your desire to be faithful to Jesus begins to overcome or overwhelm your desires to disobey Jesus. And it's going to be a struggle, right? I mean, amen. We all are struggling in that reality to try to follow Jesus as best we can. But we're sinners. We have sin natures. It's difficult. But what marks us as different from the world is this thing called repentance. This when we fail... We recognize it as failure, as something we don't want to do, as something we don't want to be. And so we say, how can I fight this even more? I I don't want to live this lifestyle which contradicts my my Jesus. We were made to be spiritually alive. And so we decidedly, we want to choose a lifestyle that follows the Lord we've come to love, right? Now, all of us have grown up in the most individualistic society in the history of the world. And what we've done is we've personalized salvation and me going to heaven to mean whatever I want it to mean. And if we're honest, we're naturally kind of repulsed by the concept of anyone telling me, making a judgment over whether I'm saved or not. You don't have the right to tell me if I'm saved or not, right? And so one of the things that we are quick to judge about people is whether we think they're judgmental. Right? We're super fast to that. Like, hey, you don't have the right to say anything about my spiritual status or where I stand before the Lord. Well, that's great. I'm glad you think that. The problem is Jesus doesn't teach that. And Jesus Jesus very clearly teaches, oh, no, 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 no. This whole affirmation of salvation, like knowing whether someone's safe, it's not an individual project. It's a community project. You know how you know if you are saved or not? Ask the people around you. You think I'm I'm 
Christian? Because here's what Jesus says. This, 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 is, this may be an American sentiment that, that you have nothing to do with where I stand before God, but it's not a Christian one. Listen to what Jesus says pretty clearly about the responsibility to recognize whether someone is Christian or not. Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. Sermon on the Mount, super famous. We know all kinds of things about this, right? Jesus says, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, he speaks to his listeners. Jesus says, thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he gives this scary sentence. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So apparently we as Christian people are called to recognize the fruit of God in the lives of other people. Are we saved by doing the will of God? No. Are we recognized as saved people when we're the kind of people who want to do the will of God? Yes. How do you recognize these types of things? Jesus goes on in John chapter 14 and he says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's, there's something visibly different about the saved person. Not that they're perfect, but that they love God and desire to do his will even when they feel incapable of doing it. Now, later in 1 John, there's a situation where some people in the church have literally turned their back on Jesus. They've disfellowshipped from the church. They say, we don't believe Jesus is the only way. And they're struggling. How do we recognize the true Christian from the non-Christian? And here's the, listen to the instruction John gives us as Christians. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. So he says, he says, no one, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, little children. Let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he's righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, what's the distinction John's telling you to look after? If they make a practice of sinning, that is, they make a lifestyle of it, they make a choice that this is how I'm gonna live my life, regardless of what Jesus has said, right? John raises a massive warning the seed of God might not be in them. They might not be a born-again person. They may have been to church. In America, if you're not Muslim or Jewish or atheist, you assume that you're Christian. But assuming you're Christian doesn't make you Christian. Let no one deceive you, John says. 
Apparently, there's a category of person who lives in closeness proximity to Christian culture and community that they can think themselves saved and everyone else think themselves saved, but that not be the reality. So much so that on the last day, they are surprised when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Let me pause right there and just ask, Is there the fruit of repentance in your life? And what I mean is, I'm not asking if if you didn't sin this week. What I'm asking is, is your desire to follow Jesus? Or are you extremely comfortable with living a life of rebellion against him? If you're extremely comfortable rebelling against God every day, then let this be a warning to you. Because what Jesus offers you is not just a ticket out of hell card. What he offers you, the good news, yes, it is freedom from the wrath of God for eternity. It is also transformation from your sin right now. And if you've never experienced God change your life, then I'd be very concerned about your eternity, right? So let's, let's pause and do some self-assessing. If there is the fruit of repentance in your life, like you remember a time where that wasn't there, and it's there, praise God. That's a miracle of God's grace in you. It's a miracle of God's grace in me. So, so here's Paul, and he's assuming if this man's living this way in an ongoing way, he might not actually be a Christian though he's a member of your church. Back to 1 Corinthians. Three observations we made. The sin was undeniable. It was ongoing and unrepentant. The sin suggests that the man may not be saved. Okay, cool. Why is Paul writing? Why is he writing this now? You might assume that Paul's primary reason for writing this section was to address the man, right? I mean, you might expect if, if I'm writing back to some church that I've heard and there's a dude sleeping with his stepmom that, I, that I'm going to write a letter and I'm going to say, pass this along to him. I need to tell him that this is wrong. I need, to, I need to call this man to repentance. But what follows you might shock you. Paul does not address the individual. He does not address the stepmother at all. In fact, we can assume the stepmother or the mother is not actually a member of the church. Perhaps she doesn't even claim to be a Christian at all, so she's not even addressed at all. But amazingly so, where does Paul direct his message from the outset after he declares what's happening? Well, Paul immediately and severely addresses the church, the community of believers who are ignoring this man's situation. He's indignant about the church's lack of response to this individual because it'd be too uncomfortable to address. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, listen to what he says. And he says, and you are arrogant. Who's the you? It's the church members in Corinth. You are arrogant. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. We've done three observations about the sin. Now let's do three observations about the church. Three truths about the church. Number one, here's his assumption. Church members care for one another's spiritual health. 
Church members care for one another's spiritual health. Paul was astounded at the, this, this problem in Corinth was that they were arrogant. We've seen already that they were proud people, boasting about their spiritual gifts, boasting about their powerful leaders, boasting about their great sermons and their public speaking, while at the same time, they're sweeping under the rug one of their own who is plunging himself into destruction. Ongoing, unrepentant sin in one of their own. Paul, he does not confront the individual first. He doesn't even confront the elders of the church. He doesn't confront the pastors saying, this is your problem. He confronts the members of the church saying, you're busy with all of your selfish pride while one of your own plunges themselves to destruction. He writes, ought you not rather to mourn? Now, that, that word, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says this about that word, that what it refers to is an established ritual for grieving observed by a dead person's relatives and friends. One commentator writes that in a spiritual sense, there had been a death, and that the Corinthian church should be mourning as though there had been a death in the family. Paul uses the word mourn here to communicate how serious the Corinthians should take this, and he essentially says, do you not realize that there's somebody taking the Lord's Supper with you every week or, or sitting in the sermon with you every week or, or singing songs with you every week who is a spiritual corpse. You don't realize that there's a spiritual corpse among you when you gather, someone who doesn't have eternal life, someone who doesn't have abundant life, and someone whom you know, whom you're called to love and care for, someone whom somebody in the church baptized and said, this is a person who follows Jesus. Should you not be mourning? The word mourn here communicates the seriousness of the situation. It also communicates the serious love with which they were called to have for this man. There should be an emotional response to the individual's moral failure, a care, a love, and interconnectedness. It should feel as somewhat like a family member is dying or who has died. Church sounds a lot more than a service that you attend once a week, doesn't it? Sounds like a group of people that have made commitments to each other that are meaningful. Truth number one, the church members should care for one another's spiritual health, but it's not just a matter of caring. There's very real steps involved in this. Paul's not just admonishing them for not caring. He's admonishing them for not taking responsibility. He's admonishing them for doing nothing. He's admonishing them because there is action that they're supposed to take. And verse 2 introduces us to the action. So what it says in the second half of verse 2, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. <clears throat> Somehow, some way. This man is officially associated with the church. He's joining them for worship, taking the Lord's Supper. He's recognized as a member of the body of Christ. And Paul says, this can't continue to happen. He must be removed from among you. So if you're here this morning, you don't believe that church membership is a biblical concept. You really have to come to terms with what in the world's happening here. How do you be removed from something that you were never brought into, Right? Why does it matter to be cast out of something if it doesn't really matter that you're into something? Does that make sense? 
Paul assumes that if you're a Christian person, what you do is you join yourself to a church. Like a, like a member of the body is joined to my body, like a stone is connected into a building that's built on the foundation of Jesus, like a family member is a part of the family. To be a Christian is to meaningfully join yourself to other Christians. And this thing called church. And Paul argues that that means something. It means something so much so that if there's a body part that's a part of the body that is obviously dead, they cannot continue to be a part of that body in the same way. Something must be done. So verse 2 it sort of introduces us to what should happen. Verses, verse 3 and 4 is a long, or 3, 4, and 5, it's a long Greek sentence providing instruction. One long sentence starting in verse 3. Listen to what he says. He says, though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So here's what Paul says. Paul says, I've already declared this as sinful. I have made a public pronouncement. I pronounce judgment on this situation. What the man has done is evil. It does not represent King Jesus. And Paul summons all his apostolic authority and he says, I've pronounced judgment on this even though I'm not there. I'm not there in the member meetings. I can't stand up and say we should do something about this. But I pronounce this is wrong. But that's not enough. It's not primarily Paul's job to make that pronouncement. According to Paul, it's the church's job. Look at verse 4. Here's the instruction. This is what you should do. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit's present with the power of our Lord Jesus, here's what you're to do. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, lots to see. Lots to see here. Let's pick it apart. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord, what's he talking about? It's like when you church together, right? <laughs> like when you come together, when you assemble, the church gathers at least every Lord's Day. That's what it means to be a church. We're a people who assemble together. The word church literally means assembly of people. <laughs> we gather, and when we gather, what we just did, when we sang songs and we prayed prayers and I'm preaching a sermon, collectively there might be people in this room who do not know Jesus. You know what they're what their view of Jesus is, whatever they see when they look around this room. We're gathering in the name of Jesus. Like what's happening right now is we're reflecting whom we believe Jesus to be to the people in this room, to the people in our community. So when, when Paul says, when you gather together, when you assemble in the name of Jesus, when you gather to represent King Jesus, now typically we sing and pray and learn together. But on this occasion, Paul says, you need to make some decisions together. So we're talking member meeting now, right? We're talking something needs to come together. A declaration needs to be made. And the declaration needs to be the same declaration I've already made, is what Paul says. I've pronounced this as evil. I've pronounced my judgment. The church needs to pronounce this for what it is and deliver this man to Satan. We'll talk about that phrase in a second. But what Paul's essentially saying is obey what Jesus commanded you to do. Matthew chapter 18, another highly skipped paragraph in the New Testament. It's what Jesus says. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So someone's living in sin, go to him. 
like a friend, take a group to them, try to, try to tell them, hey, this is bad, like come out of it, like basically fish repentance out of them, like hey, turn from this. We all fall short, we all sin, come out of this, repent. Verse 17, though, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what does that mean? That means church, pronounce this person who refuses to repent as someone who doesn't know God. Apparently, the situation in Corinth had gotten to that third level of accountability. Apparently, it's time now. A pronouncement needs to be made. This man doesn't know God. And this leads us to truth number two about the church. Super strange to our American sentiments, but this is what we see happening. Church membership is a corporate affirmation of someone's salvation. Now, church membership does not save anyone. But when you join a church, what that whole church is saying is, we believe this person is a Christian. Verse 18 of Matthew 18, Jesus takes it a step farther. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is, this is wild, wild stuff. In other words, the cooperate affirmation of the church matches the heavenly reality. Like, if the church says, we believe that you're a Christian, what we're aiming to do is we're trying to match what is a real heaven reality. Like, if you're a member of the church, you really are a member of God's people. You can have confidence because all these hundred people say, you're born again. We see it. We see God's work in you. You can have confidence. On the last day, you'll be with God and with us. But if we say, we see no evidence of the Spirit in your life, then that declaration, what we're saying is, we're not sure that you're bound in heaven with us. You might be loosed from heaven. You you might not have a place with us because we're not seeing any evidence of what God promises there will be in a Christian person's life. The church is a a very significant place, so significant. Look at how Paul describes it in verse 5 of chapter 5. And this might be one of the most important parts of the paragraph. And so if you've checked out, like I've gotten like way too nerdy on you, like into the weeds of this text, like check back in right here because this is extremely important. Listen to how Paul describes what takes place when someone is removed from the fellowship of the church. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Listen very carefully. Paul assumes that when you live outside of Christian community, you are in the realm of Satan himself, who wants to lead you down a path which doesn't lead to life, which leads to destruction. And that means what Paul assumes here, what Paul assumes is that That the Christian community, the church, that it's God's idea that in the church, like in these people, these relationships we have with each other, there's a divine safe haven from the free reign of satanic attack in your life. And truth number three about the church is this. Church membership is a refuge from satanic schemes. Listen, let me say it a couple times in a couple different ways. Paul's assuming that the church is God's good design for keeping you safe 
from the attacks of the evil one. There's something very practical about this, okay? I mean, something very practical about this. Satan and your sin nature, they lie to you. Church members remind you of the truth. That's what they do. When Paul says that, that pastors exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, he defines the work of the ministry as speaking the truth in love to one another for the building up. This is, this is what we do. Satan lies to you. Church members speak truth to you. Satan steals from you. Church members provide for you. What do you think church members did before there was insurance? They had each other, right? <laughs> Satan isolates you. Church members surround you and comfort you. Satan tempts you with foolishness. And church members try to plead with you to, to join wisdom's way. Without church members, without pastors, without deacons who are committed to guide you and teach you and befriend you, you are like sheep without a shepherd in a field of wolves roaming around with a lion who's seeking to devour you. Outside the church is the place where Satan dominates you. You lose according to God's instruction. Inside the church, there's life and life more abundantly. It's messy life. It's hard life, but it's not lion-eating you life. To become a church member is to commit yourself to a community of faith who in turn commits themselves to you and to your holiness and to your growth and to your protection and to your joy. They want what's best for you so much so they're willing to admonish you like a parent would admonish his beloved child. And Paul says it's time for this man to be removed from that gift and sent out into a churchless realm of self-destruction. Send him out to a place where no one will remind him of truth anymore. Send him out to a place where no one's pretending he's a Christian anymore. Because right now he's just dwelling in the safety of your arrogance and ignorance thinking I'm good because everybody else thinks I'm good. And Paul says, don't do that. For the love of that man, don't do that. And that leads us to our last thing. We've seen three, three observations of the sin, three truths about the church, and one dominating motivation. Last thing, one dominating motivation. Love demands the truth. First Corinthians 5, 5. Why do you remove this man? Why do you have that conversation? Why? That seems hateful. And Paul says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The hope is that this man might recognize how serious his situation really is. And he might see where his decisions lead him in the coming days and months and years. And he might see it before it's too late. He might experience the destruction of his flesh in the world without the safety of the community of faith and hopefully be driven to repent and see what he's missing out on on the last day. For Paul, all of this is about love. Do not let our culture redefine love to be something where you affirm and celebrate everything in another person's life, even if it leads them to an eternal hell. That's not love. Love demands 
truth. And Paul is advocating a love for this man until it hurts. A love that demands truth, saving truth, sometimes even piercing truth. That is a very different picture of the church than something that you show up to on Sunday mornings hoping to like the music style, right? It's a community of people committed to one another in a way that the rest of the world is not committed to you. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Let me close. But a few takeaways. A few simple takeaways. These are simple as they get. Number one, join a church. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be this one. But if you want to follow Jesus in a hostile world full of satanic attack and indwelling sin, what you need is to be a meaningful part of a group of Christians who care about you. If your involvement with local church doesn't include mutual accountability and the responsibility for other people's spiritual health and lives, you've never experienced the Christian life to the fullest as God's design for you. You're missing out on some of the primary aspects of Christian life. Don't just attend a church, join a church. And as you think about this, what's, what's tempting is, and you could sit in your chair and you say, does anybody care about me like this? Does, any, does anybody in this church care? Like if I were to run to sin, does anybody care? Some of you know that, you, that, that that's the truth. Some of you, it's tempting to say, does anybody care about me like this? That's the wrong question. Do you care about anyone like this, Christian? <laughs> like, like, do you feel the obligation to mourn over anybody else's spiritual state in this room? Or is it all about you all the time? Is your church attendance all about you? Whether you got something from the message or not, get over yourself. The Bible does not paint it like that. The Bible says, we come to church and we say, what do we give of ourselves for the glory of God? Because Jesus gave everything for me. He died for me. And I will die for these people in this room for the glory of God. Join a church. Don't just show up once a month. Number two, be the church. This requires ongoing pursuit. This is not an easy thing. I'm not saying this is all rainbows and butterflies and this is awesome. You just come to the church and sing kumbaya and hold hands around the campfire. No, 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 no. We're in a war here. We're saying just join the right army. <laughs> like join the right side. And it's going to require prayer and sacrificial love and, and, and hard conversations and ongoing pursuit of deepening relationships. It's, it's something pursued. It's something we make time for. It's something we plan for. We do so because we love God. We do so because we love others. We do so because we know it's good for our souls and our families. Number three, just thank God for the church. This community of faith it's not a burden designed by God to make your life less joyful. It's a gift of God given to make your joy more complete. In a world that's extremely lonely, this is a place where you can find a taste of what eternity might be. It's a place where you can hear the gospel explained. There's a God in heaven who loves you no matter how stinking messed up you are. But you don't just, you don't just hear it explained. You, you actually experience that gospel and the warm embrace of people in this room who are willing to forgive you, even when they disagree with you. Who, who are willing to walk alongside you even when you contribute nothing to the relationship. 
What you, what you have here is the gospel explained every Sunday and then the gospel experienced every day in the lives of the other people who are committed to your spiritual good. Be thankful for that. God didn't have to give you that. We deserve hell, not a community of faith <laughs> where we get to do this week in and week out, day after day. Let's praise God for what we see in 1 Corinthians 5, not run from it. Join a church, be a church, thank God for the church. Let's pray. Father, isn't it something that one of the paragraphs or one of the chapters that's most often skipped is perhaps what we most need in our present day? And God, I just pray, um, as we just talked about a lot of stuff, I just pray that, that the people in the room would see the beauty of this, the goodness of this, that, that they are not alone, that, that when they plunge themselves into sin that is harmful to them, that we will not just turn our eyes and look the other way because it's uncomfortable. Father, give us boldness in this. Give us confidence in this. Give us courage in this. May we be the family of God the Father on earth. May we be the body of God the Son, living hands and feet of Jesus. Father, may we be living stones constructed together on the foundation of Jesus for the glory of God for all to see. Like the Gentiles passing by the majestic temple, Solomon's temple, and seeing it in all of its glory. Would the people of St. Rose pass by this community of faith and, and see it in all of its glory and all of its, its grandeur of people saved by the grace of God and committed to each other, Father? Would they be drawn into this place by our corporate witness? Help us to love as defined by you. Love that demands truth, not love that demands tolerance. We pray all these things, God, uh, recognizing we do not have the strength in ourselves to carry out any command of Scripture, so we come to you humbly, pleading and asking, help us, God, to be whom you've created us to be. We do not have it in and of ourselves. And so we praise God for the spirit of power of our Lord Jesus that is with us when we assemble together in the name of the Lord Jesus. We pray all these things by your grace and for your glory.